Good morning and welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. We're your hosts, Afshin and Kelvin, and we are both first-year students here at the Queen's Faculty of Law. Queen's Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics that aim to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show is on transformative justice, prison reform, and prison abolition. More than 80 years ago, the Canadian government issued a report recommending radical changes to our prison system. The Archambault Report rejected the retributive and punitive approach of the system and advocated for reformation and rehabilitation for the incarcerated. In 2022, and in the midst of the global pandemic, conditions in prisons have continued to deteriorate. Solitary confinement, the rising rates of the mass incarceration of Black and Indigenous folks, and government inaction forces both lawyers and law students to think of new ways to affect change in our criminal justice system. There have been two main movements in regard to such change. Some legal scholars and prisoner rights advocates support prison reform which aims to improve prison conditions and reintegration systems. Others instead support prison abolition, which aims to reduce and replace prisons with systems of rehabilitation and structural reforms to support vulnerable communities. Looming over this debate is the practice of solitary confinement, which was recently subject to reform measures that have not been as far-reaching as some have hoped. This debate was also drastically changed by the ongoing pandemic, which has increased use of the practice and forces us to reevaluate our views on transformative justice and prison reform. How should we advocate for change and what exactly should we aim to change in the first place? All right, so joining us now is Professor Lisa Kerr. She is currently an assistant professor at Queen's Law. She is also the director of the criminal law group at Queen's Law. Professor Kerr's research and publications focus on punishment theory and the comparative study of criminal law, sentencing policy, and prisoner rights. She also supports the strategic litigation work of the Queen's Prison Law Clinic. Professor Kerr, thank you so much for joining us today on Pro Bono Radio. We are so lucky to have you. Well, I so appreciate the interest uh, that you and Afshin have on these topics. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Well, let's get the show on the road. <laughs> so our first question is, do you think it's important for criminal lawyers and aspiring criminal lawyers to be engaged in prison justice? Why or why not? You know, I do think it's really important. And I'll just say it's, it's largely because it's going to help them do better work for their clients. Um, in, in criminal law, as you both know, the vast majority of cases are resolved by way of some kind of agreement right? Some kind of plea bargain, some joint resolution that is arranged between a Crown prosecutor and defense counsel. And so it's often the case that the main um, experience that uh, an accused has um, in the criminal justice system is a sentencing hearing and where they're going to go in front of the judge and, and give the guilty plea and decide on what should happen next. And I can tell you that defense counsel who understand what jails and prisons look like in this country and what they can and cannot do and the effects that they have, particularly on people who have certain kinds of vulnerabilities, whether it's you know, not having English as a first language 
whether it's a physical disability that's going to make moving around in the jail or prison really difficult. Um, you know, if you understand those realities, you're going to be able to make a pitch for your client that can really uh, bring out, uh, you know, the question of alternatives to incarceration um, that can make a judge realize the hardship that incarceration would entail in a particular case. And so you can do a lot of great work at sentencing if you understand the system. Thank you so much, Professor Kerr. Honestly, this serves as a really good segue into the question that we have about sentencing. So I'm just going to ask you about that and then we can move on to some of the other questions as well. Um, so the question that we have is how can sentencing law address concerns with racial inequality in the prison system for Black and Indigenous folks? Is there a way to do this without generating backlash? Yeah, the question of backlash is always so important when um, you're trying to do racial justice work, especially in the in the criminal justice system. Um, in Canada, we do have a lot of experience with GLAD-DO sentencing, trying to um, get our sentencing law to recognize the profound inequality that many Indigenous people have experienced in this country, inequality that is has been caused by state action right, caused by colonial programs like residential school and displacement and, and the whole history that we all know. Um, and so it, with the GLAD-DO project, which with 718.2 sub E of the criminal code, we have been attempting for over 20 years now to try to make sure that sentencing judges think about the impacts of those colonial state programs when they are sentencing an indigenous person, recognizing that um, in, in so many cases, um, criminal activity flows from social conditions. And where the state had a hand in producing profound inequality in social conditions, that that's relevant to sentencing. Um, so we, we have a lot of experience trying to do that in the, in the context of sentencing indigenous people. And uh, you know, many people are disappointed with the outcomes there, because as we know, the rate of incarceration for indigenous people has continued to grow over the course of the GLAD-DO project. But I also think it's taken a lot of time to really figure out how to do it. And initially judges were kind of resistant and we've had to get better at doing Gladue reports that are high quality and, and really get at this information in a meaningful way. So it's been a, there's been a lot to learn and, and, and sort of improve on and there continues to be. But I think we're now at a moment in Canadian law with cases like Morris and Jackson and litigation in Nova Scotia um, where we're trying to go, okay, that's been really important work to do uh, where you have an indigenous accused. We need to also recognize that the, the, those conditions of structural and uh, inequality are relevant uh, for other racialized people in this country as well. And so we're starting to do more to convince sentencing courts to think about anti-black racism and how that impacts um, the moral blameworthiness of, of Black defendants as well. So um, how to avoid backlash, I think what's really important to communicate is that they're, they're glad do sentencing, um, none of this has ever entailed a light sentence for Indigenous people. I mean, when people think that's what it's about, I kind of say, you know, as if, have you taken a look at the rate of incarceration? I mean, <laughs> um, if this is leniency, I would really hate to see um, what, you know, what severity would look like. Um, you know, glad do sentencing is not about 
um, reducing sentences simply because of someone's race. Absolutely not. There's all kinds of indigenous people who don't have Gladue factors impact their sentence very much. Um, it's an individualized analysis. It's asking what is your social location? What is your experience or connection to residential school? How was your moral blameworthiness affected by your actual life circumstances? It's not a race-based discount. And I think if we can communicate that to people, this isn't about checking some racial box and then getting special treatment. Um, it's about addressing the actual differences um, that racialized people have experienced in their life. Um, and so I think that goes a long way to, to making Canadians realize, oh, this isn't some get out of jail free card because of your skin color. Um, this is actually a move toward equal treatment. Yeah, which is which is really salient because I think a lot of people read um, the the reform measures for sentencing as ways of maybe alluding towards the bigotry of low expectations or hmm. bringing in other ideologies. Uh, but something that I think is resonating with me at this moment is with all these reformist efforts, an argument can be made that this change is towards a system that's inherently co colonial and designed to incarcerate indigenous folks and black folks in virtue of the colonial roots of the system. So in our argument that a lot of prison abolitionists and even those who might have prison, prison abolitionist um, ideologies entering the legal world might wonder if, if this is, if sentencing is too late to even have reform measures. And I was wondering yeah. what your thoughts might be there. Well, Afshin, you said way too many interesting things in that <laughs> sentence for me to really <laughs> have any idea what to reply to. But um, uh, I think I, maybe I'll just say pick off a couple of things there. Um, I, I always say in my sentencing class, sentencing is an absolutely terrible place to try to reform society. Right. It, it is the end stage of a whole bunch of other social failures. And I see Ladu and Morris and these other cases as really addressing just, um, you know, longstanding inequities at the sentencing stage, um, a longstanding situation where judges simply did not know anything about the life circumstances and social realities of Indigenous and Black people in this country. Why didn't judges know any of that? Well, because they're not Indigenous and Black or our judiciary. We've made some improvements in recent years on that front, but our judiciary is largely white and largely middle class and um and so so we've tried to address like the worst of that of that lack of knowledge um at sentencing but that's really all it is that's all that's all the the gladue morris stuff is it's just trying to make judges better informed um so that we're not sort of aggravating that inequality in the rate of incarceration that we see in this country um, th through sentences that don't reflect the actual life circumstances of offenders. Um, but that's a pretty mild way to go about trying to reduce rates of incarceration. And it's, it's, it doesn't attempt at all to reform the social conditions that produce crime rates. Um, the other thing you said there, actually, in that phrase, that, that really important phrase around the bigotry of low expectations, I, I do think, um, and you actually heard the Crown prosecutor in the recent Morris appeal at the Ontario Court of Appeal allude to that, saying, you know, he would not want there to be some kind of sentencing rule that treated every Black person as, you know, inherently, um, you know, having come from social conditions that produce crime. 
right? Because mm-hmm. that that's yeah. that's a that's a stereotype, right? Yeah. And um and we don't want a sentencing rule that does that. Um and and so I think those are really important concerns in this area. I I would just say um you know for those who kind of know how this actually works, it's just it's not a race based treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just and it, these the Gladue reports, IRCA's, these kinds of reports, they're just about trying to improve the quality of the evidence that a judge has before her before she's imposing sentence. Um, but the principles of sentencing, right, the formal official law around proportionality and deterrence and these other things, they're exactly the same. It's just about um, better information about the individual. Thank you so, so much for clarifying that. And I'm sorry to nerd out on you on that, but honestly, I, <laughs> I'm just having way too much fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, okay, this actually brings us really nicely to our next question. So in your own work, which Calvin and I have been so enthusiastically reading in preparation for this episode, um, you use the metaphor of a black box to describe the prison environment. And we were wondering if you could explain what you mean when you use this metaphor. Yeah, so um, I think we've heard that term black box in a couple of different ways, right? It's the thing they look for after a plane crash to try and figure out what happened. That's not the metaphor I'm referring to. (laughs) There's another kind of black box that's a term from computing and engineering, and it's it describes a system that has a known function, but an unknown method. So you can talk about inputs and outputs into the system without talking about its internal workings. Mm. Um, And so when I say that in that article, I talk about the prison as a black box. Um, And and I don't don't just mean that it's a a black box to ordinary Canadians. It is absolutely a black box to them, (laughs) Um, (laughs) right? Um, But my bigger concern, the more important concern is that I think it's also a black box to judge it. Mm-hmm. And certainly to legislators as well who are setting sentencing policy. And so what I mean by that is it has a known function. It's the, it, the function is state punishment, but it has an unknown method to many judges and legislators. Um, they don't know how it works, what it looks like, what the techniques are, um, whether, whether in terms of just management or punishment or the delivery of healthcare and programming and so on. And I think that's a big problem because the official legal account of sentencing in Canadian law is that the judge sets the sentence, right? And sometimes is constrained in that decision by legislative rules like mandatory minimums. So it's judges and legislators are setting the punishment. That's what our system tells us, right? So they look at the offense, they look at the question of moral blameworthiness and the gravity of the offense, and they set the particular severity of punishment and in that, and, and so, but, but I, what I wanna say is actually the judge is purporting to stipulate severity, but she doesn't actually know what the punishment's going to look like on the ground as administered, right? What are the details of this? What's it gonna be like for the person? What, and in fact, those features of imprisonment can also impact how long it lasts because it can have a big effect on parole. Um, And so one of the points that's been really central in in all of my work is trying to say the actual severity of state punishment is determined by a whole bunch of things that judges don't even know about and don't have any control over, right? And even more significantly, many of those things are what we would call kind of standard protected grounds. So things like your 
language you speak, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, your race, your country of origin, um, these things, whether you have a disability, all of those things really have a big impact on how severe incarceration is for you, along with a whole bunch of other things that are not protected grounds. But I think mm -hmm. anyone that cares about human rights and the basic idea of human rights is that you're not supposed to have a worse experience because of your disability or your language or your sexual identity, right? Um, and, and yet that is exactly uh, how punishment works in our system. And, and courts don't have, um, they don't perceive that problem often and they certainly don't uh, regulate or control it. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that just makes me so, worried and frustrated on on a lot of levels I, I realize now that our listeners are not going to be able to see how vigorously Kelvin and I are shaking our heads as you speak <laughs> Professor Kerr was we're, very we're just... <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but I, I just I guess I think about how prisons are a way of removing literally removing citizens out of society to the margins and and they disappear into this space. And I guess, I guess the judges and lawyers and everyone who's involved in the legal world has to have some sort of trust that those who are in charge of prisons are, are doing their job to somehow measure up to what's what's written in our laws about okay this is like this is a punishment for this kind of behavior but at the same time I just I really grapple with the difference between a punishment and a consequence in this respect and thinking like is is this the way to go about it to to literally remove someone from the community which is again like this kind of ideology is completely um anti-indigenous in terms of like indigenous legal traditions of wanting to keep people in the community and not remove and rehabilitate and heal. So I just, you know, I just think about the way in which the Canadian criminal justice system is set up to, to do something that's just so harmful. So I don't know, I just, I really grapple with it. <laughs> yeah, I think you are so right to say, um, you know, there's a lot that we can do to respond to crime that doesn't involve um, degrading treatment, um, separating someone from everything that could assist them in, in gaining insight and moving forward in their life, uh, imposing and compounding trauma, uh, which incarceration often does. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of really negative stuff that flows from incarceration um, that doesn't help us achieve our goals when it comes to public safety and you know you know trying to spend the least amount of money to have the best outcomes um, when it comes to criminal justice responses and so yeah there's a lot that's really important in what you're saying i think there are probably some people um, and i think even indigenous legal traditions have tons of variety on this front and i think where it's you know great that we're finally beginning to re recover the, that knowledge and 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 the the variety of, in that knowledge across across a huge country like Canada, um, but there I, I think there are some who would say separation continues to be important for certain kinds of offenses, right? Um, but a period of separation, um, a period for reflection, right? Um, those things do not have to look like what incarceration looks like today. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we could sort of offer people, yeah, there are, there are offenses that require a period of separation. Um, but there's so much that we could be doing differently. I mean, uh, let me get concrete. In our prison system today, um, which costs us you know, a couple billion dollars, it's a huge budget. Most of that budget is spent on staff salaries. Um, you cannot get anything other than a GED, a high school diploma. You're mm-hmm. actually prohibited from pursuing education other than your high school degree if you're incarcerated in Canada. And, you know, that to me, you know, you can't do an online course. You can't learn about indigenous legal traditions um, through the University of Alberta program that's so incredible that everyone's done in the pandemic, right? The (laughs) online course. And you you can't do an accounting degree uh, through distance education. You can't do anything. You can't even watch an interesting YouTube lecture by some Harvard philosophy professor who decided to put all this stuff online so that people can enjoy it at home. You can't do anything. You can't learn. You can't access uh, the world. (laughs) Um, You can work on your high school diploma. And if your sentence is 15 years, well, you know, that's not going to take up much of it. Um, And, and, you know, why is that? Because we don't allow any internet connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do Canadians know this, right? That you're actually prohibited from pursuing anything in terms of personal education or post-secondary. And, you know, the prison service might say, well, you know, you can mail away and do a distance education course. Well, fine. Yeah. But there's no distance education provider anymore that doesn't expect their students to have online access. Mm-hmm. So distance education is now, you know, remote internet-based learning. <laughs> And the prison system doesn't offer that to any incarcerated people in Canada. Uh, so that's, that's, that's just unacceptable. And I think it's just something Canadians don't know. Um, but why would punishment, why would even consequences have to entail the end of learning? Yeah, that's, yeah, I really appreciate the difference that you've marked in um, in that period of, of separation versus, and, and what it could look like. I think, right. I think that's a good note to leave off on so that we can think a bit more creatively about what that can look like. Um, and I'll let us depart from that thought, let our listeners kind of ruminate over that and, <laughs> and go to maybe a bit of a lighter question. Um, and living in Kingston, Queens University is situated, um, in Kingston, and, and I should note, it's also situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. And the, it, it's got a very unique prison-centric uh, vibe about it. And I'm just wondering, do you think that's of importance for Queen's law students to know? Yeah, I really do. Um, you know, there are colleagues of mine at Queen's, Lisa Gunther and, and some others, who have been working with women who are formerly incarcerated at P4W, which is right down the road, of course. Um, And they've been trying to um, get a memorial garden at the site of the women's prison. It's now closed, of course, but um, it's being redeveloped now, right? It's gonna be um, a mixed, you know, (laughs) commercial. I think there's gonna be some uh, retirement housing and some shops and it's gonna be, it's gonna go from like one of the ghoulish 
sites in Canadian history where so many women suffered and lost their lives and um, uh, to a place where, you know, that history is maybe forgotten and it's commercialized and sort of papered over. And so the Prison for Women's Collective has been pressing for a memorial garden. They're not fighting the project. They're not saying this should always be a prison. I mean, a part of them is probably glad to see it, you know, become something else. Um, but they do want it to be remembered. And so that's really been interesting work to watch that coalition push for that. And I think they've had some success, but we'll have to wait and see to, you know, until the <laughs> development actually unfolds. You know, for law students, I'm really proud of what Queens does for our community. Um, we have the prison law clinic. And uh, I think our students don't even realize just how remarkable. I mean, they love it. They love the clinic. There's always a long, a long list of applications of folks trying to get into the clinic every year. I'm, I'm proud of how competitive it is, how popular it is. Um, but it is so unique in the Canadian landscape of legal education. This is just not something that other law students get to do. I mean, there might be a little bit, but you know, the prisons are so inaccessible to UBC, right? And, and other places that might be interested in doing this work. Um, we're here in the heart of it. We are surrounded by these institutions. And I am so proud of the fact that our law students go in um, day in, day out for so many years now and try to meet the legal needs of incarcerated people. Um, and they're of course, you know, appearing in disciplinary court and assisting with parole matters. And we're now doing strategic litigation work. We've done multiple interventions at the Supreme Court of Canada over the last few years. Each one of those represented by some of the best lawyers in the country pro bono. You know, these people are so happy to work for the clinic. They'll do it for free. And our students are doing the research work for them. Um, so, I mean, we, we, we are so, at Queens, we are very attentive to our location and it's a huge benefit to students to get to um, have this experiential aspect of their education. And they, are, they have done really important work pr protecting the, the legal needs of incarcerated people. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think it's very, like you said, like I, when I was applying to law school, I've, I've done so many degrees at Queens that I just, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I thought, okay. Very loyal. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> professional student at Queens. And um, when I was applying, I noticed that the prison law clinic, which was something I've been very interested in, um, it's just, just not offered anywhere else. And I, when I did my bachelor of education at Queens, I, I taught at Collins Bay Correctional Facility from, for my alternative practice and that entire experience just like really really solidified the direction I wanted to go in with like entering the legal field and continuing to do this kind of work in some capacity and I just it's it and it's so um yeah the actual experience of stepping into an, an incarceral facility it's yeah. just completely it just changed you can't read enough books to really understand what's going on so yeah, I do. I no, do it's, think this it's is so it. unique yeah. that our, our students have this uh, opportunity to graduate law school with that knowledge and those experiences. Um, exactly. There are so many lawyers who haven't been inside this facility. <laughs> there, there are judges who haven't been inside. Um, and our students, and I see it, I teach sentencing law and like they just have their hands up left, right and center, giving me the real deal on uh, all the stuff I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah no yeah and I, and I noticed that too it's just like yeah like I notice like a lot of times I'm participating in class and I'm hearing what my classmates have to say and I just wonder like with certain experiences that are sort of out of touch to me it's like how do we formulate these opinions when we haven't been touched by by the, the severity of this of this reality um yeah but well, well on that note why don't we I've got I've got one more question in this thread of the prison reform versus prison abolition stuff and then after that last question I will be handing it off to Kelvin um but let's uh let's let's wrap up this wonderful conversation um so the last question has to do with a very famous prison abolitionist whose name is Ruth Wilson Gilmore and she's a famous abolitionist activist thinker and she has said this beautiful line that has always resonated with me it's um where life is precious life is precious and she said this in relation to her politics of ab abolishing prisons so Gilmore explained that in Spain the average sentence for someone or the average sentence someone might serve in prison for murdering another person where murder itself is already a very rare crime in Spain is about seven years and she explains that her interpretation of this policy means that in Spain, people have decided that life has enough value that they're not going to behave in a punitive and violent and life annihilating way towards people who hurt people. And she continued to say, and what this demonstrates is that for people trying to solve their everyday problems, behaving in a violent and life annihilating way is not a solution. So I just wonder, what is your interpretation of this quote? where life is precious, life is precious. Do you agree with what Ruth Wilson Gilmore is saying here? And how might you try to even explain this line of thinking to criminal law students or lawyers, academics? I understand it's a loaded question, but it's, I felt like it might be a nice way to kind of allow our listeners to think about this. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, there's a lot there um, that would be really important to unpack in terms of um, comparative sentencing analysis. Um, I, I, so um, I admire Ruth <laughs> as much as you do, <laughs> but I'll push back a little bit. I think it, it can be, it can be, um, there are some hazards associated with like looking at the average sentence for a particular crime in an entirely different jurisdiction and saying, oh, well, those people you know, are more humane. Mm -hmm. Those people value life, those people. I mean, it's just, there's a lot to talk about if we want to really kind of responsibly compare why, why systems sentence in very different ways. There's a lot to talk about. Um, so let me just, I'll talk about not Spain, but a country that we're more comfortable comparing with the United States. Mm -hmm. If you want to look at why the United States has, you know, the highest rate of incarceration in the world um, and uh, why the United States still has the death penalty, right? If you wanna talk about, you know, those really profound differences, I, I think you can't just boil it down to, you know, they don't value life or they, they, they're more punitive people. I think it's hard to just give one sort of cultural explanation of that. Mm -hmm. I think if we want to get into um, why country, why jurisdictions, societies punish in such profoundly different ways, and they do, you have to look at a whole bunch of different things. The, 
design of the political system is huge, right? Um, lots to say about why the US, which leaves lots of control over crime policy to local politicians, mm-hmm. right? Each state has its own criminal law jurisdiction. We're not used to that in Canada, right? We have a federal <laughs> criminal code. They got one for every state there and a federal <laughs> system on top of that. Mm-hmm. And when you leave crime policy and sentencing policy in the hands of local actors, it tends to be more punitive for lots of different reasons. Um, the history of race relations, mm-hmm. you know, it's that's huge in the United States. It's a very r- racially um, diverse country um, with a, you know, obviously a history of slavery and not just slavery, but you got to look at reconstruction and lynching and Jim Crow and these different eras of racial oppression and transformations that have happened. And maybe we see mass incarceration as the most recent iteration of those, of those eras of racial oppression, um, the dynamics between North and South. Um, there's just, there's so much to say about why a country has the sentencing policy that it has. Um, you know, Canada, we compare fairly well to the United States when it comes to how many people we incarcerate. Our rate of incarceration is fairly low. Um, you know, the U.S. is six or seven times more than us and we go through crime waves without incarcerating way more people that's really significant um we've had about the same rate of incarceration since like the 1960s we don't seem to go through waves of politicization and even when stephen harper politicized crime policy and did all he could to make our system much more (laughs) severe added all these mandatory minimums and made it harder to get a conditional sentence and did all kinds of things. I mean, you can't even, it's a really long list of what the conservatives did during that 10 year period. And our rate of incarceration was very steady. Mm-hmm. And so there, it's not the Canadians are, are not, you know, value life more. Our, our sentences for murder sentencing are some of the most severe in the world. Mm-hmm. There, it's meant for second and first degree murder. It's life imprisonment, at least 10 years uh, in custody for second, 25 for first. We're very severe on murder sentencing. Um, it's hard to talk about that story and also talk about our moderation and consistency and our rate of incarceration. I could talk about it. I do talk about it. <laughs> <in my TV. laughs> um, so, so I know what, what, what the, the life is precious thing is saying there. And I think she's alluding to the fact that um, one of the really important factors in, in how severe a country is in their punishment is, you know, what does their system of social welfare look like? And you see that countries that have strong social welfare systems, they tend to have lower rates of incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But countries with a lot of racial diversity um, often have a lot of um, racial inequality in how they punish. So a lot of times scholars have looked to Scandinavian countries and said, oh, they're so moderate there. They really, well, they've been very, very racially homogenous societies during these years of moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, maybe that explains it, you know, maybe when, it, and maybe that explains why they have such high levels of social welfare as well. Maybe when you feel that everyone in your country truly is your neighbor, truly is your, um, not the other, not the racial other, right? But that you're mm-hmm. all Danish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're more comfortable 
you know, having a hospital system that everyone can have access to, mm-hmm. right? Maybe mm-hmm. you're more comfortable really investing in public education. Maybe you're less comfortable sending everyone to prison for long terms and throwing their lives away. Um, so there's a lot about social solidarity, the design of your political system, your willingness to invest in social welfare. There's so much there um, that might be well captured by that quote, life is precious, where life's precious, life is precious, but there's a lot else that we would have to talk about <laughs> to really say anything in general about Spain. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so appreciative of um, what you've drawn to, because I think it allows us as, as aspiring lawyers, regardless of field, to think about what we can do even outside of the legal profession mm. to really act and, and show our solidarity towards transformative justice and prison justice. So I, I thank you so, so much. And I'm very excited to pass this on now to Kelvin to ask a few questions about solitary confinement. Yes, uh, again, thank you so much, Professor Kerr. Uh, <laughs> okay. My pleasure. Uh, no, I'm, I'm so, I know I don't talk in podcast sound bites, so sorry if I'm going on a little long, but I'm enjoying the questions. <laughs> no, no, it's very enlightening. And I think this is also especially important. Uh, uh, it's important for the general public to know, of course, uh, because it's something that a lot of people don't really tend to think about. But it's especially important for uh, lawyers and law students, especially people going in in the law. Uh, sure. This is kind of uh, uh, for some people who are maybe more inclined for uh, more prosecutorial uh, sort of work. These are also really important experiences uh, to be aware of. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I when I'm teaching students who are headed to, to work in Crown offices, you know, I, I, um, I think they're some of the most important actors in our system. And, you know, on that on that on that topic of comparison. Uh, I think one thing that's really important about Canada is that so many of our Crown prosecutors really do see themselves as governed by the public interest and really do see mercy, fairness, humanity as a hugely important part of their role. And that it's not about just getting and sustaining convictions and long sentences. And I think that's a big part of why our system has been fairly well protected from sort of populist punitive influence is because of our crown prosecutors. So um, I love I, I, I love having students that are headed in that direction in my class. Yeah, of course. Uh, all right. And yeah, as you said earlier, prisons certainly do uh, both socially and in some sense in Canada practically isolate uh, the prisoners. And a lot of Canadians assume that we would never have practiced something like solitary confinement in Canada, but that hasn't really been the reality, is it? Yeah, we do have a pretty uh, rosy idea about ourselves at times, right? That <laughs> the Canadian's prison system is humane, right? We would never do what those Americans do. And it, but you're right, Calvin, we, we have had um, solitary confinement for many decades in the Canadian prison system. It's a really everyday management technique. Um, all, all solitary means is really the removal of, of a prisoner from general population and placing them in a separate range with a lot of confinement to a single cell. Um, so the way it's defined legally now is 22, 23 hours a day in a cell is considered solitary confinement. And we have 
allowed that by law for decades in, in Canadian prisons. Um, there's been very little um, until just the last few years, very little by way of legal standards, no time limits, um, really vague discretionary reasons that can get you placed in solitary. The legislation calls it administrative segregation, um, but it's been something where the, for, for decades until quite recently, the prison authority really had a, um, a really broad and almost entirely unreviewable power to just pluck people out of general population and, and hold them in cells day in and day out. And um, the, the medical literature on what that does to people is just really profound and how damaging it is. Mm -hmm. And that also kind of goes back to um, that idea of the black box before as well, because sometimes uh, judges uh, might not be aware of uh, the sort of practice that happens after uh, the sentencing process. I think that's true. And one thing that's really encouraging in recent years is that I do think you're seeing judges, and I think it's because there's been so much litigation and there's been so much media attention and there's been so much great, you know, filmmaking work and, you know, all kinds of activity on the solitary space. I think judges are starting to wake up to, um, to a concern about the kinds of folks that they know are at risk for a segregation placement to be held this way. So I, I, I'm seeing now when I look at some sentencing decisions from some judges, they're actually getting kind of attentive to, you know, mm -hmm. this person, let's say this person is um, trans, right? I, I'm sentencing mm -hmm. this person, they're getting a five-year sentence, but I know there's this really big risk they're gonna spend most of that time in what's now called a structured intervention unit separate from the general population. And the judge is aware of how severe that will be. And so might um, use their sentencing discretion to try to address that severity. So I think it's improving. I think judges do know more now, but it really is thanks to all the folks who've worked on litigation in these, in these areas and the journalists who've paid close attention to it for a few years now. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you just mentioned structured intervention units. Uh, what exactly are those? Well, those are the, that's the term that the government came up with for replacing administrative segregation. So um, as a result of all this constitutional litigation, which resulted in courts in both Ontario and British Columbia declaring the current laws to be unconstitutional, um, the Liberal government passed a bill in 2019. Uh, 2019, is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, I'm in a, I'm in a, of course, a, a black hole of time. <laughs> These last <laughs> couple of years, like the rest of us, so it could have been yesterday, it could have been a decade ago. No, 2019, and uh, the idea behind this bill. So this is the bill that comes out, and the idea is the Liberal government says we're abolishing solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's been, it, it's, it's been impugned in the courts. It's been impugned in, in, in public opinion. It's an unacceptable practice. We recognize how harmful it is for people that it's a, akin to torture. We're gonna to be the government that ends solitary confinement. Um, that was the liberal um, kind of take on this bill and what they said they were up to with it. So what they did, they did take out the provisions in the prison legislation, which is called the Corrections and Conditional Release Act. They took out the provisions that allow men SAG. They took out the provisions that allow disciplinary SAG, which is surprising because no one had asked for that, but they wanted to take all of it out. <laughs> and 
but they replaced those provisions with a new regime. And under the new regime, you can still be plucked out of general population and held in a separate range. Um, and you can still be held in your cell for much of the day and night. But there were a few important changes. Number one, probably the most important change, now you had a right to be out of your cell for at least four hours a day. And two of those four hours had to be for some kind of meaningful program or social interaction. That was a huge step forward, huge. There was no right to any time out of your cell in the pre previous legislation. So we went from zero hours, you know, in practice, they let them out for one, one or two, but there wasn't any legislative protection of that. Um, so we've gone to zero to four. So that's important. Two out of four is supposed to be, you know, not just being put in the unit next door that's empty. It's supposed to be something meaningful. Um, other things that were important, there's now independent oversight. So someone who's not an employee of the prison service um, has oversight over these placements in these units. So they don't have physical hearings, but they're looking at the files and the reasons for the placement and how someone's doing mentally and so on. And they do have the power, power to order release from those units. Um, there's better mental health protections. Um, there's lots of inadequacies in how the SIUs work, but I wouldn't wanna dismiss the importance of, of the changes and that it, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not one of these people who says this is just solitary by another name. Um, I think it is a problematic scheme, but I think it, um, everything, every scheme that involves a prison is problematic, <laughs> right? There's no like, oh, this is perfect, right? They're just, they nailed this. That is just not how this area works. Mm -hmm. um, this is an important set of improvements over a practice that was absolutely barbaric and un unacceptable. And it continues to have some problems. Yeah, definitely a good step forward at the very least. And sure. uh, regarding those cases that you mentioned earlier, uh, you actually wrote an article about the uh, case by the British Columbia Court of Appeals. Uh, so in an article in the Globe and Mail, you mentioned that uh, the BC Supreme Court departed from the uh, so-called tradition of judicial reticence in their decision. So could you explain what you meant by this and why this was so noteworthy? Yeah, the tradition of judicial reticence, that that really captures that, you know, judges have been pretty hesitant to really scrutinize um, the techniques of prison management, right? They, for a long time, um, they just kind of thought that wasn't their business. They, they thought, and there's all kinds of evidence for this, but I'll just kind of summarize what I think is the judicial attitude <laughs> that I've seen in decades of cases over the 20th century. The attitude is sort of prisons are pretty dangerous and prisons seem pretty hard to operate. And I don't control the purse strings, right? And I maybe never even set foot in one of these places. I'm sitting comfortable in my courthouse with my, with my, uh, you know, my clerk and my security personnel and so on. And, you know, it's not really my position to scrutinize what some warden or correctional officer is doing as they manage the very difficult conditions of their of the carceral environment. 
Mm. So by judicial reticence, I mean, it was sort of a notion of, this was the phrase you saw, that prisons were beyond the can of courts. It was just an area of, you know, there are separation of powers concerns. It's the executive branch of government. Um, it has to do with allocation of resources, uh, security issues, expertise, and so on. It's not our business. And if we get mucking around in prison stuff, right, it, it, we might be really causing problems. Um, this is just inappropriate for the judicial role. So for the much of the 20th century, judges just wouldn't go there. They just treated them as like discretionary zones and whatever happens to you there is, you know, the business of the warden. Mm. Now, under the charter, <laughs> that should sound very wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. When we get the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, there's no carve out for prisoners, right? Incarcerated people are protected by the same charter rights as the rest of us. And uh, although the government did try to argue that, you know, they shouldn't have voting rights in these things, but they lost all of those cases, right? And the, the law is crystal clear, equality rights, security of the person, the right to vote, the right to be free of cruel and unusual punishment, all, procedural fairness, all of those things incarcerated people have. And in fact, if you think about the charter, um, you know, I've never had to advance a charter right once in my life. Um, my life has been so privileged and protected. But for an incarcerated person, all of those rights are probably coming up on a near daily basis for them. And so with the charter era, we start to push the courts to actually oversee prisons and to enforce constitutional law there. Um, and they had been doing it already a little in the in the 70s through administrative law concepts and then it really takes off with the charter um but it's hard to get you know old habits die hard and i think there there i have done some writing tracing how judges continue to be a little anxious mm -hmm. about really doing it <laughs> and even in the charter era and so with the solitary litigation and particularly the bc trial decision from the supreme court justice leask I really saw that to be a remarkable opinion in that he did not have any of that judicial reticence stuff. He just looked at the evidence and he scrutinized the claims of the prison administrators. Mm -hmm. um, he did not just like grant deference on the basis that this was just a scary place and I shouldn't second guess what's going on there. Um, and so as I, I read that opinion, I just thought, oh, this is like what it looks like to just do ordinary constitutional litigation where you know the plaintiff has a burden but then if they meet that burden it shifts to the government to justify under section one and, and it, they really have to justify it and you know they couldn't and so they lost the case like it just it looked like an ordinary constitutional case not one where the prison gets to go in and sort of wave a flag about how dangerous it would be if the judge actually enforces the law Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important, too, because this doesn't only extend to uh, solitary confinement, but it can also extend to different aspects of prison litigation as well, now that uh, these doors are kind of opening uh, for these sorts of uh, changes to take place. Absolutely, Calvin, and if, you, if it, you're so right to say that it's, it's about much more than solitary, I always think of solitary as just a really obvious example 
of you know the excesses of prison authority and how harmful that can be and lawlessness and all these things but um you know prison is a place where every single aspect of your life if you're an incarcerated person is shaped and governed by law and policy what you're allowed to have in your cell how often you're allowed to see your family whether you can pursue an education um what security level you live at um you know your access to health care your physical safety your recreation your ability to see a doctor work out <laughs> absolutely everything is governed by law and policy and so so um your ability to have your legal rights be enforced and protected is huge i do all that stuff doctors work out plan my day do all my stuff no, law doesn't matter to me um, but law matters enormously to every aspect of life for incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally and so judicial agree. oversight is pretty important in that context. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, all right, so uh, back to uh, some of your own publications on this topic. Uh, so oh, good. Let's get back to more about me. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so in your article, uh, The End Stage of Solitary Confinement, you noted that the practice of solitary confinement had effects rippling across the legal system. So could you explain what you meant by this? Yeah, what I was talking about there was um, how we were seeing the dysfunction of solitary confinement show up in all kinds of different legal areas. So, all, you know, it was there were charter challenges that's what i just described to you charter based challenges to the law but there was also tort litigation class actions that were generate you know that were succeeding and getting really big money judgments right for the how you know with courts recognizing you know the violations of the rights of people with mental health problems and giving big judgments to um members of that class um, and then you were also seeing it um, a lot at sentencing. So at sentencing, when someone um, has been held in pretrial confinement, and, and we have huge numbers of that in Canada, um, then they're supposed to get credit for that time, right? So let's say a guy's spent two years in pretrial and he's now getting a six-year sentence. You have to give him credit for that two years, right? And um, we typically give more than straight credit because we recognize... <laughs> that they didn't get credit for early release and it's onerous conditions and so on. Um, and so when you're calculating the credit for pretrial time, what we were seeing was really big credits for all the time in solitary that folks serve in the pretrial context. So that's in the provincial jails and judges were going, oh my goodness, this person's been in pretrial where they're formally innocent, of course. Not formally, actually innocent. <laughs> they are innocent. <laughs> They're in pretrial confinement, right? And and they are locked down for six months, ten months, eighteen months, twenty three hours a day. Mm -hmm. And the judges were going, "Oh, well, I have to give way more than two years credit for that." Mm -hmm. And and it was kind of interfering with sentencing because you had a lot of guys who you just kind of had to give them a time served sentence because the severity of the conditions in the pretrial system, and, and that's a very dysfunctional sentencing system, everything, I, you know, that's really not, um, so it was affecting the credit for pretrial time, but then we also saw with the Adam Cape case, and I think this is probably the most remarkable instance of the impact of solitary on the criminal justice system and its legitimacy, 
Adam Cape was, as many of us know here in Ontario, um, a young indigenous man who had um, committed a crime in prison, it appeared. Um, he, did, he, 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 he killed another inmate on video. So it's on video. He's then held for something like four years, 24 hours a day solitary and with the lights on at night. Now, why did the jail do this? Well, who knows? They, they were mad that he committed this offense in custody. They were racist, they were negligent, who knows? Um, but this is obviously a profoundly unacceptable way to hold someone while they're awaiting trial for this murder. Mm -hmm. And he showed up at trial and he was so um, negatively affected that's putting it so lightly, he was destroyed by this experience of solitary confinement mentally. And the judge um, basically held that there couldn't be a fair trial of the murder because the only issue in the murder prosecution was gonna be around um, his mental capacities. And because he had been, the deleterious effects of these years of solitary were so severe that there would be no expert who could ever do an assessment of him and have any idea what his mental capacity was like at the time of the killing. Mm -hmm. So it rendered the prospect of a fair trial impossible and the judge stayed the proceedings. So we had to end a murder prosecution, right? And he just gets, you go home. If the, process, if the proceedings are stayed, you go home. That's the end of it. So think about that for the victim's family, right? They know that Adam Cape killed their relative. It's all on videotape. The only issue at the trial was gonna be around mental state and capacity. And, but they can't have a trial because of what the jail did to him. And, you know, jails are supposed to hold people in safe and secure custody until their trial. They're not supposed to torture them and make the prospect of a fair trial impossible. So that was it, like a gross failure of the criminal justice system that, that you had to enter a stay of proceedings in that circumstance. And so that's that, you know, in that article, I was trying to like trace just how incredibly dysfunctional this practice had become. It was messing up sentencing. It was generating these big class action awards, it was messing up even the ability to have a fair criminal trial. Um, and that's serving nobody's interest, not public safety, not victims, um, nobody's, not the people who are detained that way. Yeah, so just again, referencing your article, I've read a lot of your articles uh, recently. Uh, it's now not only really um, just an ethical problem that we're seeing with uh, the prisoners themselves who are, uh, engaged in this process, but also, uh, as you wrote it, the integrity of the criminal trial process is now at stake. So now there are also other practical considerations as well. Uh, just really quickly, because uh, we don't have too, too much time. Okay. Uh, yeah, so last month, the CBC reported there were more than 11,000 COVID cases in Canadian prisons, according to data from the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project. Across the country, the pandemic has led to staff shortages, restriction of recreational activities, and of course, as you probably have guessed, solitary confinement. So what impact do you think the pandemic will have on prison litigation and reform efforts? I'm really glad that we did save time for this question because it's probably where we should have started. It mm -hmm. is the impact of COVID on prisons and jails has been 
just devastating. And any of us who think that our last couple of years were hard, and I know they were for many people, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you just, you have to multiply that by so many times to understand what it was like in custody. Um, and, you know, it, it's the risk of illness, it's the rate of illness. Um, it was high, way higher than the average population for incarcerated people. Um, and, you know, of the incarcerated people who had uh, a COVID diagnosis, huge rates of indigenous people, um, about 20% in the federal prison system have now had a COVID diagnosis. And of, and, and of the, but of that 20%, 60% of them were indigenous people. So even when it comes to how um, the spread of inv- infectious disease hits in a prison, there, we somehow managed to reproduce inequality for indigenous people, even there, it's, it's just a remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's illness and the risk of illness, but it's also that the measures taken to manage the risk of illness and the spread and outbreaks have, are, are so severe. Um, so the lockdowns, the absence of programming, the cancellation of vi- visits, just really no outside access. I mean, I've been involved in all kinds of different programs that get delivered in prisons. And, you know, I haven't been inside in two years because everything just gets canceled, right? You can't go and do a prison book club. You can't go and do, you can't bring, you know, judges in to inspect conditions and learn about um, experiences from inmates. I mean, there's a lot of important things that we do to try to improve things there. And it just hasn't been possible to do that work. Um, and then add to it what I said earlier about there's no internet, right? Mm-hmm. There's no ability to make this time meaningful. Many of us have found ways, right? You guys are getting through law school in a partially remote experience right now. You're finding ways. It's difficult. It's not ideal, but you're moving forward with your lives, right? despite the pandemic. And that just is absolutely impossible when um, you cut people off from families, they don't have internet access. They're locked in cells for most of the day and night. And you gotta remember, that means they can't make progress on their correctional plan, which is what's required for parole. So it's, it's not just that the conditions are worse, it's that the time's actually gonna be longer as well. Um, so, I mean, the numbers you cited there, I think, would include jails and prisons. There's been 3,000 cases in the federal prison, six deaths. There's 466 active cases right now. So it's actually the worst it's been right now, right? No surprise, Omicron, it's been terrible in the community and it's terrible in the prison. Um, and then, of course, the jails are, 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 there's just outbreaks all across the country right now. If you look at the January announcements, they're just all every, everywhere right now. So it's actually the worst time it's been. Um, and as I say, it's not just the rate of infection and the anxiety around infection and how hard it is to try to recover when you're incarcerated, the conditions, not comfortable uh, accessing doctors, but it's also just, it's just what, it, what they've done to manage the risk of outbreaks has made life so miserable. So you, 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 your question was, you know, what impact will it have? I mean, there is active litigation on these issues, but it, these are going to be tough. It's going to be tough to challenge the COVID responses because, you know, much of what the prisons and jails have done, you know, made sense in a way, mm-hmm. right? Like isolating everyone. That's, that's what the government did in the community too, right? That was the way 
to prevent the spread, to yeah. manage the spread. Um, and so, you know, the government is not unjustified in that, but it makes the things that you could have fixed, right? You could have um, just said, you know, we're instantly changing our no access to the internet rule and we're distributing tablets and you can Zoom with your family and you can access educational materials and, you know, and that didn't happen. Um, so there's gonna be a, a lot that comes out of it. I really hope that as we begin to learn about what it's been like, that it changes what we consider to be acceptable. Um, but as usual, not many of us have seen any of this and heard about it, right? Um, it's, it, it, there's been less external access to these places than ever before. Um, so we have to first kind of tell these stories and make this visible um, before we can do any reform work on it. All right, Professor Kerr, thank you so much for taking the time to join us in this discussion. It has been extremely delightful to listen to hear your point of view regarding these issues. Once again, I would like to thank you for joining us today on Beyond the Headlines, and to all the listeners out there, thank you all for tuning in. Yes, and if this wasn't enough incentive to enroll in Professor Kerr's courses, then I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll just end off our show by letting everyone know that we like to say that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, hosts, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of the Pro Bono Students Canada Queen's Law Student Volunteers. Pro Bono Students Canada students are not lawyers and they're not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains general discussion of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult with your lawyer. Today's show was produced by Afshin and Kelvin. We are your hosts, Afshin and Kelvin. If you like this interview, you can find more on the Queen's Pro Bono radio website.